Amen. Praise God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, as I mentioned, we've been, we've been working through a lot of things in this, in this uh, series at, um, on the Corinthian church. We've, we've heard Paul address celebrity-like idolatry that, that led the church towards esteeming some leaders over other leaders. And, and, and even though they're all serving the same God and preaching the same gospel— um, we've heard uh, Paul address the division in the church that has resulted from that celebrity-like, personality-driven idolatry. And we've, we've, um, we've also heard Paul spend a great deal of time early on addressing just in particular division at large. Chapters 1 through 4, they talk about a lot of things, but they are mainly talking about division and what's at the heart of division. And Paul spent a lot of time with that. And then he moved into chapter 5. And in chapter 5, he starts more of like a rapid fire of topics that he wants to address. The first topic that he addresses in chapter 5 is the church's carefree attitude towards a particularly egregious sin of a man sleeping with his father's wife. And we talked about that and how church discipline enters into that equation. And, and then, of course, last week we talked about in chapter 6, um, Paul turns his attention to an ongoing conflict between church members that has resulted in them taking matters to the civil courts outside of the church and in so doing embarrassing the church in, in, in some way with their, you know, more trivial complaints about one another or against one another. And Paul addresses that in the first part of chapter 6. Now we are in the latter part of chapter 6, and he turns his attention back towards sexuality. We'll hear more. Um, there, there's going to be a lot of things that we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks as it relates to sexuality. There's going to be marriage and singleness uh, that, that Paul is going to talk about. But, but Paul starts his conversation about sexuality with a call away from sexual immorality, which the historic Christian doctrine simply defines sexual immorality as sexual relationships outside of the exclusive covenantal marriage of one man and one woman. That's, that's the historic Christian definition, so to speak, of sexual immorality. Sexual relationships outside of the confines of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. All right? So let's pick up in verse 12 and see what Paul is saying about sexual immorality in particular. He says, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The first thing that Paul does in this text is he addresses the lies and the assumptions in the culture about sex that the Corinthians have heard. There's a series of lies, there's a series of assumptions that come from the culture that the Corinthians have heard about sex that they are putting into practice. And Paul is attacking those assumptions. He's attacking those lies. Most scholars are in agreement that what is happening here is not Paul making just some new statements about sexuality, all right? but rather he is actually repeating some statements that have circulated around the Corinthian church. Now, they could be in part 
some misunderstandings about Paul's teachings. For example, we know that Christian teaching puts a lot of emphasis on the reality that we are saved by grace, not by our conformity to the law, and thus we have freedom. And, and what could be happening is that that freedom could be taken wrong, and it could lead some to start saying, as it's being said in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. However, these words that Paul is quoting the Corinthians as saying are probably heard within the broader context of Corinth. And it's almost like a sexual philosophy that they've developed in the church as a result of what's happening in the culture and it's pressing in on the church. Does that make sense? Does that make sense, folks? But either way, Paul chooses not to accept these words as unquestioned truth. Paul is calling the church to challenge the truthfulness of their culture's sexual practice and their, cultural sex, uh, their culture's sexual belief in light of their new position. He's, causing, he's calling them to challenge it in light of their new position as followers of Jesus who have been washed and followers of Jesus who have been sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Now, since there are no quotation marks in the, in, the, in, the, in the original Greek here, there is a little debate on what part of the text is Paul quoting the culture and what part of the text is Paul correcting the culture. But most people seem to be in agreement that there are at least three sentences here that serve as assumptions that are given to the Corinthian church by the culture, all right? Three, at least three assumptions, at least three, quote unquote, lies that are given to the Corinthian church that are, uh, that are being fed to the Corinthian church by the culture. Assumption number one, all things are lawful for me. And this is actually not just assumption number one, but it's assumption number one and assumption number two. Paul speaks to it twice in different ways. This statement simply means that the Corinthians should not be restricted in any way sexually. It means if it feels good, it is good. And this reason, this, this type of reasoning is very attractive to us. If it feels good, it is good. And it's attractive to us because it sounds good. Sensation without commitment, pleasure without work, intimacy without vulnerability. There's a sense in which that sounds attractive. The problem is, is that it's not true. Here's the, here's the other cultural assumption, the other lie. Like I said, assumption one and two are the same. All things are lawful, and we'll deal with that in just a moment. But the other assumption here. Is food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. These are all quotations that Paul is using, saying, hey, this is what, you're, this is what you've heard, but I'm about to tell you what's real, so to speak. Now, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. It sounds like we're talking about eating. But this statement is actually another statement about sex. It means that sex is to the body like food is to the stomach. It's just a natural appetite that should not be suppressed in any way. When we, when, when we crave it, we should have it. 
wherever, however, with whoever. As, 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 as one Roman politician who was com commenting on the prostitution of that day put it, he said this, if there is anyone who thinks that young men ought not to visit prostitutes, he is certainly narrow-minded, no doubt about it, and completely out of step with our present liberal thinking. In fact, he has nothing in common with the customs and behavior of previous generations. End quote. He says, listen, young man wants to have a prostitute, let him have a prostitute. Just like food's for the stomach, sex is for the body. You're backwards thinking if you think that this is, there's something wrong with this. You see, these cultural assumptions, lies, are communicating that sex, because it's natural, and because it's natural, it should not be restricted or limited in any shape, form, or fashion, in any type of way, in any sort of way. And if you limit it in any sort of way, that's oppressive and regressive. And this is the voice of the culture surrounding the church of Corinth. Sex should be unrestricted, sex should be unlimited, sex, and, and, and to suppress that, or to restrict it and limit it in any way is to harm oneself, is to keep oneself from the enjoyment that they deserve. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because it's us, it's our culture. It's our day, it's our age. We are the culture that says, if it feels good, it is good. And we dress it in phrases, cute phrases like, follow your heart, or the heart wants what it wants. And we use these assumptions to give license to every sexual relationship under the sun. I was reading a book, uh, a wonderful book that I'm about to quote actually in just a second, um, by, by, a man, by, by a man named John Mark Comer. He wrote a book called Live No Lies. And in that book, he talks about this, this, this very popular, popular saying, the heart wants, wants what it wants. And he said that most people forget where that phrase was coined, Woody Allen. Woody Allen, if you don't know Woody Allen, was a man who was married and ultimately began to date his wife's daughter. And during one interview when they were asked, when they were asked, when they were, when they were asking Mr. Allen, don't you feel any type of remorse for what's going on here? He responded, the heart wants what it wants. But what does Paul say to these assumptions? Assumption number one, all things are lawful for me. Listen to Paul, but not all things are helpful. Paul's point is just because you can do something that may feel good, doesn't make it good. We argue over whether we can do it, but Paul is asking, how much time have you actually contemplated as to whether or not it's helpful? Not just whether or not you can do it, but whether or not it's actually helpful that you do it. Here's what, here's what Paul or here's what the pastor and Arthur John Mark Comer that I said I was going to quote. Here's what he says about this. Listen to this. The sexual liberation revolution of the 1960s set in motion a cascade effect, the reversal of the longstanding moral consensus around promiscuity worked in tandem with the advent of birth control and the legalization of abortion, which moved on to the legalization of no-fault divorce, then to tender and hookup culture 
From there, it's moved on to the LGBTQI plus revolution, the current transgender wave, and the polyamory, polyamory movement. Amid the revolution, the questions nobody seems to even be asking are, is this making us better people? Is this making us more loving people? Is this making us happier people? Are we thriving in a way we weren't prior to our liberation? Nobody is even asking these questions, much less making a serious attempt to research the data, end quote. Everybody's saying, hey, we, we're free to do it, but nobody's asking, is it helpful? Is, is it ultimately leading to the good, not just of my own good, but is it leading to the good of all of those around me? The answer Comer actually gives us after his research, and he includes this in the book as well, and he says this, if you want to know the answer is to, as to whether or not it's making us happier or, or making us more loving or making us better, he says happiness levels have been in decline in the U.S. since the 1960s, not making us happier. He said in spite of the cultural narratives, narratives that state otherwise, we're learning that, that no-fault divorce is directly tied to the rising number of people who struggle to develop intimate, healthy relationships in adulthood. He says those who cohabitate before marriage are less likely to marry and are more likely to get a divorce if they do and often develop long-term trust issues. He says research on the two chemicals that are released by our body during sex that bring our attachment systems online and cause us to bond, with, uh, bond to another person, research is showing that the more sexual partners we have, the more difficulty our body has in developing relational intimacy with a person. Lastly, he says 25% of children spend a portion of their childhood without fathers in the home. And it's an experience that's damaging both boys and girls. He continues on with several other ways in which we are not getting better before he closes with this statement. He says this, quote, these facts are conveniently left out of the discussion if there ever is even a discussion, end quote. In other words, what? We're talking about what we can do. Nobody's asking whether or not what we're doing is making us better or more loving. And we're not even trying to ask that question because we're afraid of the answer we might find. Do you understand that? Yes, you can do it. All things are lawful, Paul says. But is it helpful? Is it good? Is it beneficial? Here's another angle to Paul's question. When we say, is it helpful? Bear in mind, we aren't just talking about, is it helpful for you? Too often when we discuss these type of things, right? We're talking about the benefit of exercising our freedom. The only person that we are considering and thinking about when discussing it is us. We say, is it beneficial? Well, yeah, I mean, it feels good, or, or is it beneficial to me? Well, I, th I mean, I think it develops something, you know, I, I think I can find some benefit here for me. But more than likely, Paul has more than himself in mind when he asks these questions. Here's how I know that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 through 24. Um, listen to what he says when he, when, he, when he quotes the same thing here in this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through 24. Listen, he says this. All things are lawful. There it is again. But not all things are helpful. There it is again. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Listen, verse 24, 
Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So what is Paul saying? Paul's saying all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, not just for you, but all things are not helpful for those around you. As you're thinking about what's lawful, you have to think about what serves the benefit, serves your benefit, and what serves the benefit of those around you before you give it license. Does that make sense? In the freedom of your actions, seek the good of your neighbors is what Paul is saying. Maybe you've convinced yourself that, that, you, that you watching these lustful images and videos aren't harming anyone, but the reality is, is that you are supporting an industry that thrives on the exploitation of young men and the exploitation of young women and the trafficking of young men and the trafficking of young women and, the broken, and, and all the broken relationships and the marriages that are lying behind that industry, behind the curtain that that industry doesn't want you to look behind. And so is it harmful? Yes, it's harmful, but not just harmful for you, but harmful for all of those others that I just mentioned. They matter too, is what we have to tell ourselves when we're wrestling with our flesh. They matter too. Is your free indulgence helpful to them, is the question you have to ask yourself. See, when we exercise our freedom in adultery, it's not, it's not only not helpful for us, but it's not helpful for others. It's not helpful for the spouse that we abandon. It's not helpful for the children that we betray. It's not helpful for all of the trust that we destroy around us. You see, if everyone is totally free to do what they please in their own eyes, then no one is safe from threat and from harm and from exploitation that comes with those unlimited and unrestrained actions. You can't, have uh, you can't have unrestrained freedom without people getting hurt. You see, I may be able to shoot a gun in the air in a crowded space, may have the ability to just pop, 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 but it doesn't mean that those bullets aren't going to land on some people and wound them. Even in Corinth, the prostitutes situated throughout the town weren't lifeless. These were mothers. These were daughters. These were people with emotions and people with feelings. But see, in the exercise of this sexual freedom, they were only left to be treated as objects, to be used and tossed aside, leaving a trail of trauma and a trail of tears. Was the free indulgence of the people to do whatever they felt like helpful to those prostitutes? Of course not. You see, Paul is challenging the notion of freedom, even sexual freedom, and asking, is it leading to a higher good? That's the question that we have to ask when we're tempted to explore that freedom. And I'm not, here to, I'm not here to undersell that, that temptation. We know that that temptation is very real in our hearts, but we have to change the conversation. It's not just simply, is it good for me? But is it good for those that is impacting around me? That's the question we have to ask when we're tempted to explore that freedom. Here's assumption number two. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. One theologian translates this text this way. All things are in my power, but I shall not be overpowered by anything. 
See, Paul is uncovering an undersold result to giving ourselves completely away to something. When we give ourselves completely away to something, we run the chance and the strong likelihood of becoming a slave to that thing. This is not the only place that we've heard Paul say this. We hear Paul say this in Romans where he says, if you present yourselves, of, you pr- present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. When we discuss addiction, we often talk about substances, drugs, and alcohol, and even food, but we leave out one of the most addictive elements in our culture today, sex. 5% of the adult population is addicted to sexual activity. 5% of the adult population is addicted to pornography. They are bound in ways that is impacting their lives, their time, their wallets, and their relationships. You see, freedom without restraint is often the quickest path to Bondage, I'll say it again, freedom without restraint is often the quickest path to bondage. Tell a child he can eat as much as his heart desires or her heart desires, and overeating soon becomes a temptation, along with all the troubles that it brings. Tell an adult that they can spend as much money as their heart desires, and overspending soon becomes a real temptation, along with all the trouble that it brings. Saints of God, freedom without restraint is often the quickest path to bondage. Jesus said everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sin is not interested in playing with us. It is interested in ruling us. The only way to experience true freedom is to live within the restraints that God has ordered out of his own wisdom. That's where freedom is. Sometimes we hear it and we see it and we read it and we think that it's being restricted, but actually it's the way to freedom. It's the path to freedom. To live without restraint is how we, is, is how we get bound. You see, whenever we attempt to remove this yoke that Jesus gives, remember Jesus says that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Whenever we attempt to remove his yoke, we will, without fail, take it off and put on a heavier, more oppressive one that will eventually rule over us. You don't get the opportunity to just say, hey, no yoke. You know, take take off that yoke and then you just walk around completely, totally free, no yoke. No, you take Jesus' yoke off, you're going to get another yoke in exchange that will automatically be heavier and more oppressive. Trade in the yoke of Jesus for the yoke of money or the yoke of power or the yoke of sex, and it will eventually dominate you in ways that you don't even realize. So Paul says, the culture is telling you, do whatever you feel like doing whenever you feel like doing it. But I'm telling you that neither is that helpful nor is it true freedom because it will ultimately lead to our bondage. What about the last assumption for the culture? um, In verse 14, he says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, there's actually two assumptions here in this text. The first assumption is our bodies are nothing more than cheap desire machines. 
And our job is to just simply satisfy those cheap desires. Come, come what may. Like a stomach that craves food, you feed it. A body that craves sex must be fed as well. Otherwise, it is being suppressed, and thus it is being harmed. To that, Paul says, the body is not meant for sexuality or sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Meaning this, yes, you have desires, but if all you do is grab for unrestrained sexuality, then you haven't dug deep enough into those desires. You see, your heart and your mind and your body was created for communion with the triune God of the universe. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says, he has put eternity into man's heart. In other words, there's an ache there. There's a craving for, for the divine. In us is a longing and a craving for deeper fellowship and deeper communion with God. But instead of turning towards God, what, what, what happens all the time for us is that we stop on lesser things and we end up making a, de, a, a, a def, uh, or we end up deforming the original design of those desires. And we become bound in those lesser desires because we're trying to extract something from them that was always intended to be found in God. Some of us are consuming so much and yet finding, find ourselves so incredibly empty. And we've been this way for months. We've been this way for years, in fact. And, 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 and we've turned to TV and we've consumed all that we can. And we've turned to alcohol and we've consumed all that we can. Or we've turned to social media and we've consumed all that we can. Or we've turned to work and we've consumed all that we can. And yes, even we've turned to sex and we've consumed all that we can. And we've consumed and we've consumed and we've consumed to the point where now those good things have been deformed into oppressive and bound, uh, into oppressive things. And yet here we are still finding ourselves empty, even though we are consuming and consuming and consuming to the point where you now, you're bound by many of these things, and yet you still found, find yourself empty. But it's because you've made gods out of these things. We've made gods out of these things. Gods out of these things that were never intended to be God. And, 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 and we've never truly turned our focus towards the one who actually is God. Now, saints of God, this, would, this morning would be a beautiful time for us to just turn back to the Lord and stop consuming all the other things and, and deforming these desires that are good desires, but we're deforming them because we're trying to make them ultimate desires. This morning would be a good time for us to just redirect our attention and our focus and turn back to the Lord, turn back to him in prayer and in fellowship and in communion and in time in our word and in, and in time and uh, just sitting in silence with him, meditating before him fixing our eyes on him, asking him to search our hearts and root out the sin that's there, root out the idolatry that keeps turning our attention away from him so that we can stop being 
so that we can stop consuming empty things. There's a second assumption here as well that I want to deal with. There's, it's, it's a little debate after, uh, about whether this statement, God will destroy both one and the other, is part of the cultural uh, culture statement or it's actually a part of Paul's correction to the culture. But I'm inclined to believe that it's part of Paul's correction, or Paul, I'm sorry, part of the culture's statement. God will destroy both one and the other. For one, the statement that God will destroy both the body and the food are consistent with much of the Greek philosophy that permeated that day and most likely was in the city of Corinth. You see, they carried a low view of the body, basically saying that since the body was going to perish anyway, it didn't really matter what you did with it, have fun, go at it, you know, go hard. It's going to perish anyway. So they lived how they wanted to live, said what they wanted to say, did what they wanted to do, drink themselves into silly stupors, want to have sex with anyone they felt like having sex with, and they did it. They said, oh, the body's going to be destroyed. So whatever. Now, this is not just a recipe for recklessness, but it's also a recipe for abuse. See, one of the most significant ways that sexual immorality and abuse and exploitation gain a foothold in the life of both believers and non-believers is the devaluing of life and the devaluing of the body. The New York Times published an opinion piece on December the 4th, 2020, entitled The Children of Pornhub, and it covered the exploitive nature of one of the world's largest pornography websites and its complicity in, ch in child trafficking. One young lady, um, they, it was sharing stories of these young women that had got wrapped up into this website and got wrapped up into this, uh, this exploitation. One young lady, um, her world was turned upside down when she started sharing racy photos and videos with her ninth grade boyfriend, who unbeknownst to her was sharing those videos and photos with other boys in the school. And eventually the situation exploded at the school and, and the photos found their way onto that website. And she was viciously mocked and teased at school, making it even harder for her to continue going to school. And boys were asking her for more videos, threatening to send the existing ones that they had to her mother if she didn't show them. And so to keep her uh, to keep the photos and videos from getting to her mother. She gave the boys more of what they were asking for, and she eventually attempted suicide, and her mother eventually find out, found out, and then they tried over and over again to get the videos off of the website. And despite their best efforts, they kept popping back on this website. Now, even though she was an honor student before all of this, her grades plummeted and she started skipping school and a new friend introduced her to meth and opioids and she became addicted to both of them. And eventually the overwhelming shame led to her dropping out of school where she became homeless. So at 16, the, the article says, she advertised on Craigslist and began selling naked photos and videos of herself and it was a way to make a bit of money and maybe also a way to punish herself and she thought Listen, I'm not worth anything anymore because everybody has already seen my body, she told them. You see, the lie that your body is now worthless is the lie that was used to further exploit and abuse this child. See, one of the most dangerous lies that Satan tells us to keep us entangled in a web of sin or drive us towards hopelessness and abuse or exploitation is to tell us that our body does not matter 
and even more insidious, to tell us you don't matter. By the way, we see a similar thing happening in, in Corinth in this text. Remember, the issue at hand in 1 Corinthians 6 is not just any old sexual immorality, which it includes that, but it's more than that. In particular is the sin of prostitution at work in Corinth. He talks about not being joined to a prostitute. Prostitution is at work here. So think about it. At the height of this sinful practice in this system is a group of people saying, I'm powerful and I am free to do whatever I want to do. And this body is going to be destroyed anyway, so who cares how many prostitutes I sleep with? That's at the height of this system. But at the depths of this system, at the bottom of this system, is a group of exploited people saying, I'm powerless and bound, and my body means nothing to these people. So why should it matter to me? You see what I'm saying? Is it lawful, but is it helpful? In other words, how is it serving the people around you? We, without knowledge, sometimes can take part in a system that, yeah, feeds our temporary pleasures but causes irreparable harm long-term to us, but also exploits the ones that we're using for those pleasures. You understand that? It's why what Paul says in these last six verses is so powerful. Give me eight more minutes. He says this, number one, your body matters. Verse 14, and God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. To the assumption or to the lie that your body does not matter, right? It's going to be destroyed. God's going to destroy the body. God's going to destroy the stomach. None of this matters. To that, Paul says, no, it matters a great deal. Number one, it belongs to Jesus. When you're tempted to kind of just cast yourself to the side and just use your body however, however you know, you, you feel, because it's like, why does it matter? Nobody cares. Or why does it matter? I, I got this crazy past in my background, and, and nobody will love me with this, with this baggage I got. Nobody will love me. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to yourself over and over and over again. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Yes, that body. Yes, your body. Whatever it has experienced, whatever it has gone through, will be raised up in glory because Jesus Christ carries the power to do so. It is not a throwaway body. It doesn't matter what you've experienced. It is precious to God, and it will be resurrected at the day. Don't forget verse 11 of chapter 6. Read that to yourself where it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Your body matters to Jesus. 
But number two, affirmation number two that Paul gives in the midst of these assumptions and lies is that you are united with Jesus. Verse 15 through 17, do you not know that your bodies are members of sin? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to the prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Now, Paul isn't, doesn't have a, a certain prostitute in mind. That's not really the picture. We, we put so much energy in thinking about the prostitute that we miss the point that Paul is making. Shall I take a member of the body of Christ? Paul is saying that you are, as representatives of Jesus, you are an extension of God. You are a part of God. You, when we took communion, we, we were celebrating the fact that we were a part of God, that we were a part of his body. Paul's saying you are a member of his body. And shall I then take a member of his body in an attempt to defile it by joining it with a member of iniquity? Paul says may it never be. Then he says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? There is, there is spiritual uniting at work in sexual activity. Paul says this isn't just physical. This isn't just, you know, this isn't just something to do. This isn't just something to, cra- you know, to satisfy a craving. That you are taking the very body that, 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 that has, has, has been joined to Christ and you are now joining that body with an institution of iniquity. Says you can't do that, of course not. But then there's affirmation number three. You are a dwelling place for the spirit. How do you combat those lies? How do you combat those assumptions that are in the culture that are telling you, hey, you're free to do whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it, however you want to do it? Man, listen, that's just sexual appetite. You need to feed that appetite. If you don't feed that appetite, you're just oppressing yourself. No, no. Rehearse to yourself 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? See, Paul changes the game again on, on our ideas of our bodies. We say, you know, man, I got so much baggage, B. I mean, I I hear you. I really do. But you just don't understand the kind of baggage that I'm working with. You don't understand the things I've done. You don't understand the people I've slept with. It's ugly, bro. And to that, Paul would say, do you not know that your body now is the residing place of the Holy Spirit of God? Your body matters. The divine dwells in your body. Notice that Paul makes a point by not just saying the Spirit of God, but saying the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. And notice that Paul uses the language of the temple. What is Paul trying to do here? Paul's trying to take us back. He's taking us back to the Old Testament. 
When we think about the temple and we think about the tabernacle and we think about the ex- exclusivity of, of, of the temple and how you couldn't just walk in the temple. You couldn't just, you couldn't just strut in through the tabernacle, right? The people were dropping dead if their hearts weren't prepared or if they didn't belong there. And he's saying now the spirit, that same spirit that dwelt in that space is now dwelling in you. Don't ever say that you don't matter and your body doesn't matter. Your body is a place where the spirit dwells. Now, that's a great and that's a high privilege to think about, for us to think on that God's spirit is dwelling in us. But as one theologian puts it, with that privilege comes a great responsibility not to desecrate the temple. Do you understand that? Your body is a temple where God dwells. And so with that, with that privilege, there's a weight there to say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing anything, any and everything. I am no longer free to do any and everything. God dwells here. And I'm going to fight with all of my might and all the strength that he gives by his spirit to not to ensure that I don't desecrate this space. And should I do that, I'm going to run to the throne of grace and receive more grace and more help and more strength to fight yet again. Because this space is his space now. It's not just any space. It's not just a rack of flesh. It's his space. And then lastly, affirmation number four, you were bought with a price. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your bodies. Remember Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave his life. When he died on the cross, it was, an, it, it, was, it, was an, it was an act of forgiveness, but it was also an act of purchase. You understand that? He was purchasing you. He was buying you. Scripture calls us slaves of Christ. We belong to him. You see, for those who would declare uh, in, in the Corinthian church in verse 12, we are free to do whatever we want to do. Whatever we want to do, however we want to do, with whoever we want to do it with, Paul would respond, Jesus paid for you in his very own blood, and you are no longer your own. You are his. You belong to him. I hope you see the connection here. Remember, the sin that Paul is addressing is prostitution. Here we have an issue where members of the church are running wild and taking women and, and declaring to themselves, I own you for this night. I paid for a night. I'm free to do whatever I please with you because I paid for you. I paid for you, and so because I paid for you, I have the freedom and the right to exploit you. And to that, Jesus steps in. And instead of paying for us, in order that he might uncover and exploit us, he has paid for us 
to make us a part of himself. Instead of paying for us in order that he might abuse us and misuse us, he has paid for us in order that he might shower us with his glory, shower us with his grace, shower us with his mercy, make us a part of his bride, invite us into the great wedding feast. Yeah, we were bought too. The same way that those prostitutes were were bought in chapter 6. We were bought as well. But the one who bought us chose not to exploit us. The one who bought us instead chose to save us, wash us, sanctify us, justify us, and redeem us, and glorify us. So how much more so should we then respond to those that are being exploited? And instead of taking part in that act of uh, exploitation, take part in the act of seeing that they be cleansed, that they be rescued, that they be affirmed, that they be loved. How much more so, since he has bought us, should we glorify him in our body, the very body that is his temple? How much more so should we chase after him? and reject the push from the culture that says, hey, you're free to do whatever you want to do. How much more so? No, I've been bought. Jesus paid for me with his own blood, and now he lives in me. Saints of God, I I know, man, we are inundated in this this culture, okay? We are a sexualized culture. Everywhere you turn, you're going to find it, you're going to see it. And so it's these truths that you have to rehearse in your heart to make war against it. Does that make sense? Continue to rehearse these truths in your heart. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you so much.